Okay, so I'd like to welcome to the show today, Amiga Point. How are you today? Good, sir. I'm doing great. How are you doing? Very well. As I was just mentioning before we started recording, pretty cold and chilly over here in the UK at the moment, so I'm just trying to keep from freezing over. Uh, but other than that, doing pretty good. Awesome, so, awesome. Well, thanks for having me. Yeah, absolute pleasure. So the, the listeners uh, may know you in general from UFO Twitter, and uh, particularly because you and uh, the Hermetic Penetrator recently authored a, a mega article entitled Loose Threads, which I've been talking about on and off the podcast actually as well a lot in uh, recent weeks. So first of all, thank you for the work that you've both put into that. And um, how has the, the reaction been to that so far? Yeah, it's been, um, honestly, it's been overwhelmingly positive. Uh, you know, I mean, obviously, anytime you write something about UFOs, you'll have um, you know, pockets of naysayers here and there. And, and, uh, and, and we've certainly had that, but, uh, honestly, I think sp- I can uh, safely speak for both of us in saying that we're both overwhelmed by the reception we've gotten. So, um, yeah, I can't, I honestly, it's, it's kind of exceeded, um, our expectations and we did have high expectations, but it's, it's really, um, it's been encouraging to see people kind of come around and encourage us and, uh, spread the word and, uh, really get behind it, which I think is is really great. Yeah, excellent. And it's been it's been great to see the the response to it. You know, it's generated a lot of conversation, and and there's been some great podcast episodes and things. You know, off off the back of it that I've seen you appearing on, and and whatnot. So to sort of set set the stage a little bit, I'm just going to sort of very briefly summarize the article in massively broad layman's terms and and you can then flesh it out as much as you want afterwards and i'd sort of describe it as um an an article that really taps into a few of my key areas of interest in in this topic sort of a a look back through the the decades at a a loose affiliation of of scientists military and intelligence community personnel who've been trying to access what richard dolan described as the the center of the labyrinth and at the center of this labyrinth is allegedly a core control group who have been allegedly operating outside of congressional oversight to control you know whatever it is that's known about ufos including allegedly again studying and you know reverse engineering the materials from these ufo crashes and possibly even biological material etc and you guys kind of examine some of the individuals involved the, the groups they formed through the years and their efforts to kind of access the center of, of the labyrinth of secrets and um obviously that is quite a, a brief description. I've, I've sometimes simplified this whole concept as like the one and nose group who have been trying to, you know, get to the group of in the nose, you know, those two mm-hmm. separate kind of factions. Obviously, there is a lot more nuance to it than that in general. That's why you, you made a such a lengthy article all about it. But first of all, how, how do you feel about that summary? Is that fairly accurate and anything that you'd like to add? No, I think you've really picked up the, um, you know, kind of, what I don't know that we intended to, for it to be that, but what it certainly became um, is yes, looking at this movement of individuals um, that had varying levels of access, um, but seemed to be at least at the beginning united in um, a cause to 
like you said, kind of get to the center of the labyrinth to, to get more information, to learn more. Um, and so sort of tracking their history, um, you know, throughout the, the 70s, 80s, 90s, and even up into, um, you know, the 2000s and 2010s um, in current day, uh, it's kind of our history, right? It's, it's the stuff that, that we can feasibly get at. We can, we can kind of follow um, the, the kinds of studies they've been pursuing. Um, we can follow their affiliations. We can see the public statements they've made, things that they've published. Um, and, and in doing that, uh, you can sort of piece together you know, a, a story, you can sort of piece together a narrative. Um, and, you know, really by letting them speak, uh, more so than trying to impose any ideas that you might have, um, you know, just just by seeing where they lead you. And, and I feel like that's what we really tried to do. Um, and I think we had a, a good deal of success doing that. And, um, and, and there's certainly a lot more to be learned. There's, uh, I, I think that there's, you know, one of the things about the positive reception that we've had is people have um, really, they found little things that we that we didn't include, right, or uh, that we didn't find, right, and they're starting to pull on their own loose threads, and, and they're uncovering more information every day, um, which is really exciting. And uh, I think, you know, uh, putting the, this research out um, in a way that does leave some space, sometimes intentionally, and sometimes unintentionally, I think has been really beneficial um, for the conversation, especially as we're all kind of sitting waiting for uh, whatever to happen on the, the UAP report and the NDAA and all of that, that stuff. This is kind of, I feel like filled the vacuum a little bit and given people something to chew on and, and something to do um, and some, in some way to contribute. Um, so anyway, yeah, I think your, your summation was really great. Uh, yeah. Thanks a lot, man. And yeah, it, it's true. You know, we were waiting for this, uh, this report, which may or may not have been a, a nothing burger. It may have been really good. And instead we got this huge 240 odd page article. Um, it's not easy to summarize such a, a lengthy piece of work in, in a few lines. So I'd heartily recommend, um, once again, that everybody should go check this out. It's, it's completely free, a well mm-hmm. worth a read. And I'll, I'll include the link in the description as I have in previous shows. Uh, where I've talked about it. So you've done a, a very detailed breakdown um, with Richard Dolan recently, which I would also recommend people go and check out, where you go through a lot of the the key points uh, and in, in the structure of, of the article. So rather than doing the, the same kind of thing, I thought we could try and pick up on a few of those you know, loose threads and try to see how they fit into the, mm-hmm. the wider tapestry, if you will. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's often mentioned that uh, some groups within you know, the military, government and intelligence community are sort of more connected than others to to this. Um, and some actively involved in the cover-up and some are actually kind of left out of the, the, the loop a little bit, as it were. Mm-hmm. And this this kind of group of, of one and who have been trying to get to the centre of the maze of secrecy, this kind of loosely affiliated group, do you get the sense that it is driven in an organized way by out of the loop agencies, either directly or indirectly, or is it more of a kind of very loose coalition of just whoever's willing across various different services, ranks and and roles? Mm -hmm. This is a a really interesting um, question that I don't think that, that we have obviously a, a certain answer to, but in terms of my feeling, my feeling is that, um, that they're at least as as it if we look at the key characters, I do think that the key characters um, have 
you know, had been working together to some extent, right? Um, and and over time, and I do think that there are um, instances where they've made statements that seem to indicate that yes, they there was a coordinated effort that they were, um, you know, there was a, a particular time where um, Dr. Putoff told somebody, told Jacques Ballet that um, that uh, uh, Colonel Alexander was just an action officer for higher ups. Um, you know, and that was kind of a, a theme that we explored. You know, there was this task force Delta, right? That was sort of a think tank that um, fed into, uh, you know, d- there was Major General Stubblebine, but it seems like maybe it went beyond just Stubblebine to other um, people. And, and it's unclear if this was just, you know, Army um, or like an, an INSCOM kind of initiative, um, or if it was, you know, part of a, a larger umbrella group. I know that, um, you know, Melinda Leslie has... Um, you know, talked about some of her conversations with, you know, d- various members of the group over the years. And, you know, Bob Wood, um, you know, told her, uh, I believe that, uh, that they were answering to some sort of umbrella group, right, that there was someone else that they were, you know, that they were kind of reporting back to. Um, you know, when she first met Jack Houck, um, you know, she's talked about how basically, he almost told her about the working group almost as if they themselves were MJ-12. Um, you know, now my personal feeling on that is that's probably, you know, that was probably an overstatement on his part, um, you know, to, to kind of get her interest, you know, in, in that uh, group a little bit more. And, but it does seem like maybe they were answering to other people. Something that I found recently, um, that I think is relevant is, um, in 1984, um, there was a, a piece of legislation that was passed that, um, in the, in Congress, that made it easier for uh, there to be joint research ventures, okay, um, between defense contractors without uh, as much liability, antitrust liability, and things of that nature. Um, so this happens in 1984, and then of course in 1985 is when we have the Advanced Theoretical Physics Working Group. Kate Green retires, um, and he goes private from the CIA. Um, you have Dr. Hal Putoff leaving SRI and creating, you know, uh, going to Austin and, um, and establishing a, a private organization as well. Um, there, it seems like that legislation to me seems to be very significant. Um, and, and someone also pointed out that, um, you know, that piece of legislation is what led to Admiral Bobby Ray Inman to, um, also create, um, MCC, which, uh, you know, is was his corporation that that he set up, which also I think was based in Austin as well. Um, and so I think that that's that 1985 year is really important, and everything kind of around that 1984, 1983, and that kind of that's a really key area. Um, and I think that that legislation maybe um, adds a little bit more smoke, um, if you will, to the atmosphere in terms of um, trying to establish is there some evidence that this was a really coordinated effort. Um, I don't think it was just a straight up loose coalition of whoever was, you know, interested. I think maybe there were some people for whom it, it was that. Um, but I think the key movers and shakers, the, the people that we followed throughout Loose Threads, I do think that they were coordinating to some extent. Um, and, you know, it's possible that they, you know, one or more of them were answering to other groups, um, whether it was one or multiple um, you know, that that's kind of anyone's guess at this point. 
Yeah, it's. I mean, this is where the the nuance comes in, isn't it? Because you know the yeah. the, simpli- the simplified thing of like you know the one and O's and and the in the O's. Even within the the kind of one and O's, this this loose affiliation group, there would be some who are much more aware of of certain things, read into certain programs that others mm-hmm. are not. It's not as though they're all on exactly the same page in terms of what they know about the secrecy and things that they've been involved in. But it's kind of that that question of like how much of the work that's been done by all these various people that mm-hmm. in, in that kind of one and those group, where's the line between kind of officially sanctioned programs and things that they've sort of been involved in that they've been able to lend their expertise and their facilities, for example, you know, like laboratories that they might have had access to or, you know, skiffs and things of that nature. Mm-hmm. It's, it's really difficult to determine that, isn't it? Where the line actually is. Yeah. And, and, and you know, one thing I'll, I'll mention as well that, I don't know if I if I've said on Dolan um, or, or on any of the other. I think I've, I've mentioned it a couple of times, but um, I would say that th- of that entire core group, I think that what we know of their access and what we think of their access is probably an understatement. That they probably all know much more, and obviously they have non disclosure agreements and things like that. But I think that they've all had maybe um, that they are more in the know than maybe we. Um, imagine them to be that they, I don't believe that they were all um, that core group that we're looking at um, that they were on the outside looking in uh, to, to any extent. I mean, it's possible that that's that again, there's nuance to it. It probably changes over time. Um, and we kind of looked at that in loose threads of different things that may indicate when somebody may have known something new or um, gotten a greater amount of access. But um, yeah, I mean, I, I think that they all know, more than than they say, obviously, um, for legal reasons, and and it's possible that some of them, um, you know, are still active and and working in things today. You know, I mean, uh, there's I know there was a recent um, interview where Elizondo uh, said that he talks to John Alexander. You know, and and um, in recent interviews, John Alexander has talked about how he's still a um, a contractor. You know, that he's a consultant, um, and and so. Uh, you know, it, that's really interesting. It, it, that's something that, that Dolan pointed out is, is, you know, these guys are getting up there in age, they're in their eighties and yet they still seem to be really locked in and involved in some of these things. Um, and I think that's pretty significant. You know, that's not something we should ignore. Typically it seems most people, you know, when they're in their eighties, they're thinking about retiring. They're certainly not, um, acting as, you know, consultants and, and, uh, defense consultants and things like that. So. Mm-hmm. I suppose it's it's one of those, isn't it, where if you if you love your job, you never work a day in your life, and if you're working on some That's of the true. things that, that those guys are working on, you probably never want to retire, would you? You know, you'd probably always want to keep yeah. a hand in trying to get to the bottom of these things. Um, but a, a good example of that is um, some of the things that Hal Puthoff has said recently in a couple of interviews. There was that chat that he had with Eric Weinstein where he was absolutely adamant, certain that there are you know breakthrough physics, you know, being worked on that have already been sort of you know discovered essentially and they're being mm-hmm. worked on in, in the, some of these secret programs and you sort of think well he can't just be a you know purely outside looking in if he knows things like that and he's you know he's willing to sort of state it with that much certainty um mm-hmm. so there's a good chance that you know he has worked on a lot more than than he can publicly reveal mm-hmm. what kinds of things has you know working on the research for loose threads taught you and or told you about the the actual core in the no group or the, the central programs what what do you think t- 
tough question, obviously, to answer, but like, do you have any ideas of what they actually have? Do they have just something in, in the in the vein of like minor breakthroughs in propulsion experiments? Or are we talking about like debris samples mm. with intriguing properties or multiple intact craft you know, bodies? How, how far do you reckon it goes? Um, yeah, so yeah, it's that's a that's a really tough question, and um, you know, it, it's kind of it's nuanced in the sense that you have to think about like each individual and sort of what their, what their research focus has been over the years and, and maybe kind of, I mean, it's all speculative, um, you know, uh, but like, for instance, you could look at, um, you know, Kit Green has, has obviously been involved with, with experiencer studies over the years and looking at the physical effects. Um, and, and so, uh, you know, one wonders, um, how much exposure he's, you know, he's had over the years to, um, you know, to experiencers. Is he still involved in that? Um, you know, and, and how much they've learned. One thing that's interesting is he told Annie Jacobson, um, in her book, uh, phenomena, I think it was, uh, that, uh, he had, that they had already identified the CIA had by we, the, the CIA had identified markers back in, I guess, as early as the eighties, genetic markers and things like that. Um, and so when you start to look at the, the temporal acts, uh, you know, kind of the chronological, um, implications of that, I mean, if they, they were seeing some of these genetic markers and things like that associated with experiencers and rock star remote viewers and things like that, if they were seeing that in the eighties, I mean, that's a long time ago, you know, I mean, that's, we're, we're getting on 40 years from, from then. Um, and so, uh, I, I think that you, you kind of have to look at that aspect too, and, and even look at, you know, uh, especially Dr. Putoff and the papers and things that he's been working on over the years. Um, you know, especially as it relates to quantum theory, you know, there are things that, you know, you're seeing public released, um, research that's coming out about, um, you know, the brain is a quantum computer and, and, you know, all of these different, you know, quantum, uh, quantum theory and quantum mechanics discoveries. And these are things that he's been working on for, you know, years and years and years and years, zero point energy and, um, and the like. And I, I think one paper that I mentioned, um, on with witness citizen that I think sh people should, should look at is there's a paper that, that Dr. Putoff, uh, published that is about how physics and metaphysics co-arise and it's sort of it's actually a it's it's not a there's not math in it or anything like that it's a very it's it's written in english right you can you can sort of um understand what he's what he's putting down and you can find it it's on his um it's on the the earth tech site and you know he kind of talks about that his whole you know his goal for the research he's been doing is to basically unite physics and metaphysics that he thinks they're the same thing. Right. And he's trying to show on his end of things on the advanced theoretical physics end that, um, that, uh, those things, when, when we look at kind of metaphysical concepts, that those things are true in a, in a scientific sense, um, as well. Um, and, and I will say it is quite, you know, in, in two, when you, uh, also look at like his ultra terrestrial paper, I was taking a look at that the other day and getting kind of a refresher. Um, you know, these are really well-respected scientists and they, they seem to have, um, you know, especially in Dr. Putoff's case, um, he doesn't seem very scared to write about these things, right? He doesn't seem to worry about what it's going to do to his reputation. And, and it could be that that's just a personality quirk of his. Um, but, um, 
he writes with a lot of confidence, you know, about these topics and, uh, and he, and he publishes the papers and, and, um, and I think that that, you know, you almost wonder, is he confident because he knows just like in the interview that you referenced before, it's not mm. a feeling like, Oh, it could be that. I guess you could speculate that or all signs seem to point to yes. It's no, it, I know. And, and, um, there was even a, a quote that we included in loose threads. Um, that was, uh, I think it was at SCU maybe. Um, uh, it was, I think it was at a conference during a Q and a where they said, well, you know, Colonel Alexander said that there was this program and, you know, the, they looked for a crash retrieval program, a reverse engineering program. They never found it. You know, um, they always thought that somebody else was doing it. And he said, matter of factly, it was someone else. And, and, um, again, it wasn't a speculative sort of statement. It was a very, um, a very concrete matter of fact statement. Um, and so, uh, you know, there are, there are maybe some other things that, um, you know, rumors that you hear and things like that, but, you know, we, we try not to, with loose threads, honestly, we did try not to, to include a lot of rumor. We tried to really go straight to the sources themselves and, you know, things that have been published and, um, you know, uh, and, and kind of work from, from that end. But yeah, it's, it's, there's a lot of nuance <laughs> and it's certainly not an easy answer to, uh, uh, an easy question to answer, but I do think that that uh, these individuals have more. I think I think some of them would would surprise even us. The level of their I'll just say that I think that there are some of these guys where the level of what they know and they know and they've had experience with and and so on and so forth would frankly surprise us, um, even you and me. Um, and so um, you know, I'll I'll just kind of leave it at that because anything else is just you know speculation. Yeah, yeah, it, it it is um pretty interesting to consider, isn't it? But like you say, it delves deep into the waters of of speculation. Mm-hmm. That's that side of things. But I suppose, you know, that's what all of the um the, the legislation going through at the moment and that kind of thing is is aiming to get to the bottom of, isn't it? You know, if yeah. these kind of if these programs, you know, do exist and that kind of thing, you know, and they're operating outside of congressional oversight, we need to get people who have been, you know, familiar with these programs to actually be able to come forward without fear of reprisals and all the rest of it. So that's probably a good good way to go to actually get to the bottom of some of this, isn't it? Yeah, and I think you're you're um, hitting on a really important um, piece there, and and that is, you know, um, I saw on the panel uh, Ross Colthart was on a, a panel engaging the phenomenon where he was talking about how he was concerned that some of the the legislation or some of the language um, really put the onus on uh, you know people who had. Uh, Whistle the whistleblowers, if you want to call them that, um, it put the the pressure on them to pursue legal action, to take kind of take initiative and pursue legal action if they felt like they were going to or they had experienced reprisals um, from defense contractors or the government. Um, and he was worried that that might uh, discourage a lot of people from actually doing it because who has time and you know the legal representation. And I think that that's a very valid, an extremely valid point. Um, however, I do think it's possible that if you have people like, let's say, Dr. Davis, Dr. Alputoff, um, Jacques Vallée, um, you know, people who, if given the opportunity, would probably talk to somebody and probably maybe to some extent, maybe already are, that's the rumors, right? Talking to some of these folks. Um, that might be enough. That might be enough to really make headway. You may not need, and, and, and obviously they all are you know, uh, affiliated with, or not all of them, but they're all, you know, uh, Danny Sheehan's one phone call away. 
And, and so um, I think even if we can just make it legally safe and tenable for those people that we know um, to come forward, that might be a massive, massive leap forward for them to be able to actually tell elected members of our government um, what it is that they know all of all that they know, not just what they're able to say to UFO conference, not all, you know, not what they're able to say on a, a you know, a, a YouTube show or a podcast, but like what they, the full extent of what they've experienced and been briefed on and shown and all the, the whole nine yards. Um, I think that that would be um, amazing. And, and I think it would also make a lot of people who have disparaged those individuals, um, you know, over the years kind of, you know, eat crow for sure. Um, because I think that, that, there have been a lot of people who they they look at this subject and they look at this topic and they see those those group this group this group that we've kind of studied with loose threads and they almost think well look it's just always the same guys you know um, and you know honestly if you were working on secret projects you probably want to use the same guys you don't want to you know you probably want to have the same core group of people involved because then you have to bring less people in it's better for secrecy you don't have to um, bring someone up to speed and um, and so I, I think that, that, uh, again, just circling back to what I said before, that we'll be surprised by what these individuals know. And I'm sure that I'm not sure, but I I'm fairly, uh, confident that if given the opportunity that at least two or three of these guys will talk and, and will spill the beans if it's legal and safe, um, as it can be for them to do so. So. Yeah, it's interesting to think about who it would actually be. I mean, I think um, mm-hmm. um, Gary Nolan and, and uh, Ross Coltart has mentioned as well with his mm-hmm. sources and his, you know his kind of finger on the pulse of either of those two uh, individuals that the, the people that are actually looking at, at coming forward and not currently known to the to the UFO community, which is really interesting. But I don't know mm-hmm. what's more interesting to me personally that or Eric Davis coming forward. <laughs> you know, again, not com- very important to remember as well, isn't it? That mm-hmm. we're not talking about coming forward onto a podcast or onto right. Carlson or something. We're talking about coming forward to congressional committees in a secure system where that's probably, or at least not for the foreseeable future, going to actually come out to the public. But if, if we want Congress to be able to get to the bottom of you know where these programs might exist, what's really going on, we need people like, you know, your you know, your Hal Puttoff, your Eric Davis, the, like, like we were talking earlier, um, you know, Hal Puttoff claims to have, you know, pretty confidently be able to state that these things are are being used as new physics going on. You know, Eric Davis mm-hmm. has already already attempted to to brief Congress on on crash retrievals and things like that. And um, mm-hmm. you know, if if those people can come forward, that's going to be really exciting. Um, but also, if if there are other people that we've never even heard from before, you know, yeah. that it's interesting to think about how you know how deep the well goes as it were you know the the other people yeah. outside of just the 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 main names and faces that we all recognize in the topic how, how many do you think there the could be behind the scenes are we talking about a, a vast number i so this and this is just me speaking so i don't want anyone to um take take everything that i'm saying in all of this this is i speak for myself this is not um i'm not speaking as a group as it were with uh with hermes as well but my opinion is um, that this idea that nobody knows is bunk. Um, this idea that there's only, you know, there's like three people who know and everybody else is completely in the dark. Um, even within the military, not, I'm not even talking just in the defense contractors, uh, in the, in the private um, sector, um, that there's no one who knows. 
I think that that's number one, that's a very beneficial narrative for secrecy, isn't it? The idea that, well, you know, nobody really knows. And if there was someone who knows, it wouldn't be me or it wouldn't be you or anybody that we would know about. Um, I think that a lot of people know. Um, not, and when I say a lot, I'm, I'm talking about relatively, I'm not saying there are, you know, thousands and thousands and thousands. I'm saying, you know, more people than we would expect. No. And the reason I say that is because if you look at, um, the activities that we, that I believe have taken place, which are not just, um, you know, UFO crash retrieval, but possibly even, you know, baiting and downing the craft, um, and, and, and then retrieving them and then transporting them and then, you know, splitting it up and figuring out who gets what, and then the R and D. And then, I mean, that is a logistically lots of people have to be involved in that. Um, you know, that is not a three man job that is you, you're going to have to coordinate between branches. You're going to have to coordinate, um, between units. You're going to have to make sure that, um, you know, not only that everything gets carried out with fidelity, but also that um, security is is um, is um, taken care of the whole way through and, um, you know, chain of custody. I mean, this is I think that it would take uh, quite a few people. And so I don't th- I think especially at the higher levels, you know, if you're looking at uh, the Navy, like at the, the highest levels of the Navy, it would surprise me if they don't at least know the basic facts. Um, and it would, it would surprise me if the highest levels of, at the Air Force don't know the basic facts. Um, they may not have all of the granular hands-on knowledge and experience, but they know something, you know, and, and that, especially, you know, uh, in Loose Threads, we looked at, um, you know, Sumner Shapiro, uh, Rear Admiral Sumner Shapiro, because it was someone that, um, you know, Admiral Bobby Ray Inman told um, Bob Exler to go and speak to after their kind of infamous recorded meeting or recorded phone call. Um, about, you know, recovered vehicles. He said, you need to go talk to Rear Admiral Sumner Shapiro. And, you know, Shapiro, by all accounts, was telling them how the craft was put together, how they take them apart and put them on trucks. And, and you know, it was it was Exler's, um, you know, feeling that he was hands-on. You know, he was not talking, he was not giving secondhand information. He would, This was someone who had actually, you know, observed the craft and, and possibly even put their hands on a craft. Um, and, uh, you know, there's also the little bit, you know, getting uh, obviously a very important topic of remote viewing that in the Wilson Davis notes, um, you know, uh, Vice Admiral Wilson says, oh, remote viewing, I'm aware of this remote viewing. I know what that is. Um, and and so I just I'm, I don't buy the idea that there's no one who knows and everybody's completely in the dark on this. Um it's possible that nobody knows how much progress they've truly made um, and the facts that they've uncovered. It's possible that they say, hey, yes, look, we know about this. We're going to be, if something comes down, we're going to need you to help us get it and, and, and maintain secrecy. We're going to need a few of your guys and your units. Um, and, but just know this is, you know, we haven't made any progress. You know, we haven't been able to make any progress. And it, it sort of shut down. And of course, you have to sign all of these things. You can never talk about it anyway, right? And, and so it's just kind of a, it, it's not a conversation anymore. It's like, well, it just is what it is. We can't hope to, to understand it. And so therefore, there's no reason for you to ask any more questions about this. Um, we'll take care of it. And by the way, you have a promotion coming up pretty soon. You know, if you don't do what we tell you to do, then don't worry about that. And, um, and we know where you live and, you know, that you have a family and kids and grandkids and, the, you know, the whole nine yards. There's just no... 
you know, they're going to do what they they're going to do what they're told. Um, as most of us, I think it's really easy to criticize some of these folks that are in, um, you know, higher higher positions that, oh, well, I would just spill the beans and tell everything. And I got to say, I don't think that, that you would. You know, I think most people that say that, it's really easy to say that when you're not in the same position that they are. Um, you know, if you have someone that um, it's not just your financial livelihood, but maybe potentially your livelihood livelihood and your family, you know, health and well-being and uh, then I think that that's, it's a different conversation. Um, so, uh, anyway, that's a long answer to a short question. That's my specialty. Um, but yes, I, I do think there were a lot of, I think that, that there are more people than we would expect are, um, knowledgeable about this. And I do think that it's possible that there are some people maybe in lower positions that are not, you know, way up high that do have knowledge on this. You need people to drive trucks. Um, you need people to establish perimeters. Um, and not all of those people are going to be four-star generals. Um, and so there, it takes manpower to get these things done um, and to do these operations. And, you know, we've seen, you know, some of those t- kinds of people come out, like in the Weygant case, um, you know, in Peru, uh, Peru 96 or 97. Um, you know, that's someone who he was, you know, just a soldier. And all of a sudden he finds himself involved in this crash retrieval you know, a uh, scene that he was actually not supposed to be at. Um, I think that there are probably a lot of cases like that. Um, but if they put them through what they put Weygant through, then, you know, they're not going to talk about it until it's safe. Um, so anyway, that's, that's my, I don't know that it's that controversial of a statement, but it, it could be that I do think that a lot of people, uh, a lot more people than we would expect now. Yeah, no, that, that's really interesting, man. And hey, don't worry about the long answers. It's great. Keep them coming. It's um, it's it's what I like. And yeah, I think I just wanted to make the point as well. I think you know you you brought up a couple of very specific cases, and and like you were saying, the the thing about loose threads that why I rate it so highly, and you know why I think it's so useful is that it's not just kind of like oh maybe this is the case, maybe this is the case. You specifically go back and look at documents, recorded interviews, statements that people have made. It's actually referring to like you know ha- hard facts essentially of things that have happened. And then obviously there are moments where you might think well maybe this means that, but a lot of the time mm-hmm. that's left up to the to the reader to to go into. But and obviously when we're talking about the amount of people who might be clued up, that is that side of things, isn't it, where we don't really know who knows what, but it's interesting to consider based on some of the things that we do know as fact. It's funny, I was talking to um, to Dave about this uh, off, offline, you know, just in our signal conversations that we have about the concept of like a, an MJ-12, you know, going back mm-hmm. to what you were talking about as to how many people knew um, or, or know to, to this day. And the reality of like a, an actual group of 12 people, for example, who know mm-hmm. all the secrets and everybody else doesn't have a clue and they're on the outside looking in. I just, I, I, I agree with you. I can't see that that would be possible or, or you know, how that could possibly work. I was joking that it's probably more like the MJ-1200, you know, like you would have, <laughs> yeah. you, would, you, you would have, to, I mean, you may have like a, a, a very small core group who know all the pieces of the puzzle, you know, but we're, we're not talking mm-hmm. about like, the recipe holders for KFC here, are we? Where like you know, <laughs> two people know, and they have to be in different state. That wouldn't. You'd have to have such a vast infrastructure, especially as the years mm. have gone on, and and US, you know, government departments, intelligence community has grown and grown and grown. The sensor capabilities and things that they've got that they didn't have like 50, 60 years ago. Every mm. one of those sensor systems 
is going to be potentially picking things up and you would have to have somebody stationed in each individual you know department of wherever the sensor systems are being operated you know potentially people like john ramirez you know, mm-hmm. who's, who, who's, you know, had access to sensor systems within the CIA. And actually, you know, he was talking on the podcast the other day that he actually himself drafted a memorandum for the Secretary of Defense to do with these kinds of things. You would have to have mm-hmm. people in every single department who's got any kind of sensor systems or any data collection or any awareness, mm-hmm. like you say, the people who are driving trucks potentially for the crash retrievals and whatnot. So it would be a, f- a fairly sizable number of people. But I suppose the, the question is, you know how many people are at the real core of that and have you know the the you know like the full pieces of the puzzle and does anybody have all the the full pieces of the puzzle i suppose that's the the question there isn't it yeah yeah i would think that even even the the folks who you know believe they have the full pieces of the puzzle maybe they don't or or you know maybe they there's still this inkling in the back of their head like yeah i i think i know it all but you know what if i don't you know what if there's somebody else that's even you know, higher than me. And especially if you're someone who's been involved with this, you know, um, kind of Byzantine secrecy, you know, uh, this kind of stovepiping. Um, I think that's, you know, a lot of times the secrecy that we think about that, that gets cited when we talk about, you know, that is, is in the related to national security is keeping it secret from the enemy um, and from our adversaries. Um, however, I think a lot of, you know, where they spend their money is keeping it secret from our own government, you know, from other people. They don't want the left hand to know what the right hand is doing. They want the person who picks up the track. They're like, you're not going to do all the, you don't need to know what that is. You just tell us that there was an anomaly and we'll deal with it. And that's all you need to know. Um, and, and I do think that there, um, you know, something I've said a couple of times that I think is important to note is, you know, one size fits all answers are not going to work with this. And and so if somebody thinks that all UFOs are advanced, you know, government programs, um, you know, and, and then on the other side, you have someone who thinks that all advanced, you know, government programs are UFOs, that's not accurate. Probably it benefits secrecy on both ends, right? You've got people who are in charge of the advanced government programs. And for them, it's very beneficial that people think that everything is, you know, are, are, is related to non-human intelligence. Um, but on the other end, the people who are working on the UFOs, they probably benefit quite a bit. If everybody believes that anything anomalous they see that they can't explain is related to some sort of a, a government test. And that's probably a narrative that they use um, probably quite effectively um, within the ranks, you know, to, to keep people silent, like, oh, don't worry about that crash, just establish perimeter, don't turn around. And it's because you're not, um, you know, you don't, you don't have the, the security clearance, you're not, you don't have the need to know to know what this craft is. So don't worry about it. And, um, and, you know, it's possible that people believe that. And so even when their buddies bring it up and say, hey, man, I caught a, I caught a glimpse of that. And I think there was, I think it, this was like a, a flying disc or something. They'll be like, yeah, you know, it's a government program, they've been making discs. And, and, uh, and, and, and so I think it just gets, there's a lot of mud in the water and, and that's on purpose. Um, you know, I'm sure some of that happens naturally, but a lot of that is, you know, there are people that put mud in the water, um, and, and to make it difficult, not just for you and I to, or, uh, you know, to, to kind of suss out the truth, but for people on the inside that actually do the work, you know, um, not to be able to suss out the truth. And so it's it's so complicated man and these guys are good at their jobs you know they they um you know uh, all of the things that that we think about as possibilities for disinfo you can believe there are people who are much better paid than we are um whose entire job it is to do that and to carry that out they've thought of it all um and so 
um, I think it's difficult to um, overstate the lengths and and the um, and honestly how intelligent you know some of these efforts to um, muddy the waters are and to maintain secrecy. I think that we again would be surprised. Um, you know, by the levels that they would go to, to keep some of these things secret. Mm. Yeah, absolutely, man. I mean, th- there's a couple of things I really want to get to. Um, so we'll just kind of shift gears slightly. Okay. You, men- you mentioned earlier, the-, the two things I want to get to are remote viewing and baiting. Obviously, okay. the huge topics you could do a two or three hours, <laughs> two or three hours on each, I'm sure. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, remote, remote viewing is something that definitely features quite heavily in in the loose threads document and it's sort of something that you can't really escape from if you look back over the decades at, at you know people who've been looking into this topic it's it's omnipresent isn't it and mm-hmm. you know I, I wonder your thoughts is there an element of of where the the kind of the the one and those group obviously there's a lot of nuance within that but do you think they were perhaps using any means at their disposal to try to get sort of a unique selling point, which might yes. allow them to actually get to the sort of like in the nose group through the front door, as it were, you know, as in like the, if they stumbled across a breakthrough by being willing to try some really out there experiments that they could sort of make themselves indispensable to that core group. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I think you, uh, you, at least for me, you hit the nail on the head. Um, I, believe that uh, remote viewing is a reliable, you know, method of gathering intelligence. Um, You know, I don't think it's 100% reliable all the time or or even close to that. Um, But if, if it's something that uh, if it can get you information that you can't get any other way, um, then it's probably better than nothing, right? Even 30% is better than 0%. Um, So and especially if you can use multiple people with technical skills, like, uh, for instance, the INSCOM viewers were technical remote viewers, and, and they were, you know, people who had engineering backgrounds to kind of actually know what they're looking at and be able to make an accurate description um, of various components and things that they were trying to remote view. Um, you know, I think that that that's a, it's a selling point. Um, I don't think it's a stretch of a selling point. If you have the data to be able to prove on other terrestrial, more terrestrial objects, I guess, if you want to call them that, um, things that you can go and check and get feedback on and say, hey, these guys are, you know, really accurate. When we put them all together, we can get, you know, uh, 50, 60, 70% accuracy, then that's a selling point in and of itself. Um, and, and it's certainly a selling point if you are looking into topics and trying to observe things that you cannot otherwise observe. Um, you know, there's, you can't send in a spy to find out what's on the inside of a UFO. Um, you know, that's, that's just not going to work. So, you know, you need some means of figuring that out. Um, especially if you're someone who, um, even if you've got, let's say, let's say, uh, we'll get spec- speculative here and say, you've got a craft and you're able to look on the inside and you know what, what's going on. That doesn't mean that you know what it all does. I mean, that doesn't mean that you you know what every every uh, button or panel does and, and um, that you can get an idea of what the, um, what the entities themselves, what their purpose is and what they're doing. Um, and so I think that remote viewing, you know, if, if you were able to, best case scenario, see one of these objects in operation um, and observe it from the, observe the external part of it, but also the internal machinations and, and see what's going on as it's traversing, you know, if, if that's exact, if that's actually what it's doing. Um, 
as it's an operation, I think that has tremendous value. Um, you know, and of course, this is all hypothetical. We don't know this, but I see that as being a great selling point. Um, and if you can tap onto that, that it's possible that, you know, your remote viewers may also be able to um, establish contact with the beings or to function as maybe bait, right, for drawing in the craft. Well, then you've got a trifecta, right? You've got something that nobody else has. Even people who have, you know, uh, five dead alien bodies and in a craft, um, they can't communicate with the beings. Um, and you know, they, you're going to be able to get some uh, some really interesting information. So yes, I do think that um, to sum up, yes, I, I think that it's very possible that. Uh, that remote viewing is one way that they saw and really just psychoenergetics in general, that they saw um, as a way to create that, that need to know, right. That selling point that um, to create that gravity that they needed to get invited in, right. To, to um, make themselves really attractive to people who had more access, you know, than they did. So. Mm. Yeah, I, I sort of wonder where that line is. Again, you know, was it a case of people who, who weren't necessarily read into these kind of core programs who were, you know, like like Hal, Hal Puthoff and various other people who were, who were using that and, and sort of taking opportunities to, to, you know, commit to programs in remote viewing so that they could develop the studies and then have that unique selling point to then get access to the core programs? You mm -hmm. know, or, or was it a case of perhaps there were certain people who had like a foot in, in both camps, as it were, they were read into yeah. certain aspects of the core programs themselves. The core programs are highly compartmentalized, very limited in terms of what they can do. So they sort of outsourced some of their mm -hmm. studies to other groups by just kind of giving a little bit to help us off or whoever it might be, you know, mm -hmm. where, where do you reckon the line is there as a tough one to, to get your head around, isn't it? Yeah, no, I, I think that's a, those are real, two really good possibilities. And, um, you know, uh, it, it certainly seems interesting um, that, like you said, remote viewing and UFOs have been kind of tied at the hip since the beginning. And that's something I hope people who read Loose Threads will, will get and see. Um, and it was not something that we intentionally meant to do. It's just something that, that happened as we were doing our research. Um, but yeah, I, I, it is. It's really hard to to figure out where is that line. Is it is it possible that there are people like maybe Colonel Alexander who had his feet in two different camps and um, you know was sort of steering the ship because he was actually on the board at SciTech um, and so he you know he was involved there um, as well you know and, and but at the same time um, you know is it possible he was you know at the same time I think he was working at um, at Los Alamos as well. And so, you know, it, it's, it's really interesting to see, you know, what retired really means and what, you know, former really means that it's, it's really flexible with these, with this crew of, of people. Yeah. Um, and so a lot of times when they say they're retired or, you know, um, you know, they, they used to do this, they used to do that, or, or it was just a, um, a personal interest. It almost never turns out to actually be the case um, when you really dig into it. So, you know, it's possible that someone like Colonel Alexander or uh, maybe even Dr. Kit Green or, you know, different different folks um, were, yes, you know, they, they were involved in programs and were, like you said, maybe outsourcing some of that information. And, um, you know, because especially when you look at, we were talking about earlier, secrecy and how much money it probably costs to brief new people into the program. Um, 
you know, if there's a way to get that information without having to do any of that, if you've already got civilian groups that you are, they're not even really civilian groups, right? But, um, you know, groups that are outside of your program that are doing the work that you would want them to do. And you can get that information without giving them any sort of feedback or any sort of, you know, uh, wink or, or nudge, then that's probably pretty ideal for you. You're saving money for, for one, not just on, you don't have to pay them, but you also don't have to pay for all the security. You don't have to brief new people in. Um, and, and so, uh, I do think there, and, you know, Dr. Putoff, we got that, uh, that memo that I think it, it came from, uh, I think Jay from Project Unity got it from Ed Dames and it was from 1984 actually, where Dr. Putoff said, Hey, what if we set this up where we're going to do all this research and it's just a low cost information gathering activity. We can basically feed this information back up the chain. Um, you know, and, and, uh, and, and as we look to fund, you know, something more serious or, or other projects and things like that. Um, so I, I do think that, that, you know, the scenario that you, that you, uh, laid out there is definitely plausible. Yeah. And that, that's, that's the thing that I kind of came away from, um, you know, my own sort of research as well over the last couple of years and, and sort of, you know, reading it in in loose threads, a lot of the elements that I've been quite interested in, sort of laid out like that. That that's kind of the the two loose threads, if you will, that I sort of came away from reading reading the the article. You know how how much of it is the foot in both camps concept, where mm-hmm. you've got somebody who's kind of part of that core group or at least affiliated with it, and then you know using these other kind of outside groups to be think tanks to explore these strange possibilities of you know kind of out there concepts um Mm -hmm. you know to then be able to to basically get around the the compartmentalization like eric davis has talked about how that's one of the major limitations you can't just bring people on board and you know that's the opposite of the way that science usually works i think is what he says because you can't share expertise with you know your friends and colleagues Mm -hmm. you're just stuck with a limited so the one way to get around that is to then you know, sort of directly or indirectly fund these other research efforts within various other areas of government, which will all be mm-hmm. tucked away in their own little cubby holes and things like that as well. Uh, so how much of it was that kind of thing, like the one foot in both camps concept? And, and how much of it, uh, on the other hand, could be a case of these, you know, the one nose group exploring these ideas to get a unique selling point to actually then go mm-hmm. to the uh, the in the nose group, as it were, and say, look, mm-hmm. we've cracked this. You might not have figured this out yet, but we've got it covered and we've learned this, this and this, and we've put it together in a paper for you. This is why you mm-hmm. need to let us in. You know, it's that that's kind of uh, the, t- the two things that it's really made me think of. But I suppose we don't know, do we? But that's yeah. those are those are the loose threads I'm going to be following up on, um, you know, to try and dig into a little bit more. So the other thing was baiting. Really want to get to this. Yeah. Um, so do you think the the kind of you know the, again loose affiliation one and knows group, whatever you want to call it, became aware somehow that baiting was going on in the core program and tried their own version of it, or do you think that was perhaps uh, another kind of unique selling point idea where they were trying to um, come up with a, a successful protocol to be able to actually, you know, bait UFOs in again for, for access perhaps. Yeah. So I think it, especially if we're talking about baiting, you know, we, we kind of explored a couple of different ways. Um, you know, there's baiting with, um, you know, with nuclear material, special loads, right. Or, or possibly even just simulated uh, military activity. 
And I don't think we've seen our core group really get involved with that sort of, or at least nothing that we found showed them being involved with that. Um, however, um, you know, being involved with, you know, making the discovery of using experiencers to bait and bring in, um, you know, craft, that seems to be something that they were involved with, um, you know, to interact with the phenomena, to bait the phenomena. Um, absolutely. That's something that they were involved in. And especially if you, you know, keep in mind that um, valet was brought in, you know, to SRI, um, you know, in the 70s to look at um, the as a consultant as an unpaid consultant in the 70s. And I think he officially joined in it was either 81 or 84, um, you know, became sort of more official to actually look at the um, the correlation between their best remote viewers and uh, frequent UFO sightings. And so you can almost see like that's right there. That's where the idea is. If you want to bring in UFOs, and obviously these guys were all interested in that, um, you know, studying UFOs, and you know that these guys, for whatever reason, these people that you've got as uh, remote viewers, they are um, prone to seeing them, then you know, what are your, what's your natural thought process going to go to if you, if you want to see UFO, right? If you want to bring them into a somewhat of a controlled environment, not really controlled, but at least be able to predict that they're going to be here. Um, you know, find a UFO hotspot and bring some of your buddies, you know, and see what happens. And that's what we have seen. I mean, we've, we've documented uh, where, you know, John Burroughs has talked about, you know, that he was involved in that kind of work um, in Sedona. Um, and I know that, uh, you know, Vinny asked him, I actually haven't, I'm ashamed to say I haven't listened to that episode yet. But Vinny, I know, asked him about that. And, and one of the people that was with him said, you know, I'm surprised that you are not already in the government working on this, right? Um, and apparently, you know, prior to going to that, he was, uh, to you know, to that experiment in Sedona, um, he was given instruction on, um, you know, certain kind of meditation and yoga, right, at Earth Tech. And um, he also, after the fact, was, um, you know, you have Gary Nolan and trying to get his, I'm not, not Gary Nolan, um, Kit Green trying to get his, um, you know, his blood. And you also, I do think that Gary Nolan was involved in trying to get that that material from his from him as well, including, and John Alexander was, was there too. So you have like this whole crew, right, that's sort of coalesced around John Burroughs as an experiencer, um, you know, we also have, you know, uh, Belinda Leslie has talked about how, um, you know, John Alexander apparently knew about Rendlesham Forest within 10 days of the fact that it happened. Um, so, you know, this is, this is really, um, you know, this is really sort of an interesting area, but I do think that baiting with experiencers is something that they know about, that they've known about. Um, and I don't think that it was necessarily something that, they got from another program. Um, that's just my speculation, but it seems like it's something that they discovered, um, you know, due to their work at SRI. And, um, and it seems to be something that they're still interested in today, right? It's something that they're still looking at right there. If you find, look for experiencers, uh, especially high level experiencers um, that, that are kind of known in the community, that's where you're going to find all of these, you know, all of these people, you're going to find John Alexander, you're going to find, um, you know, Jacques Vallée, you're going to find, uh, you know, now even Gary Nolan, you're going to find those, those folks. And so I think that, that, uh, that connection is there. And, uh, I, I don't think it was something they found from another program, but that's just, that's speculation. I don't know that it's a think, not a no. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it's something that I've been absolutely fascinated by the concept of, of baiting. I mean, it's kind of like, you know, if we're, we're talking about 
people like Lou Elizondo, for example, has, has claimed that they actually took part and did baiting experiments in mm-hmm. during his time in ATIP and things like that. I mean, it doesn't get much more kind of intense than that, does it? You know, actually being able to literally lure UFOs into in, into uh, appearing. Um, but then I, I think about the 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 various different baits you know that that have mm-hmm. been discussed you know Lou Elizondo's talked about this uh, and and many other people talked about this nuclear connection and things like that um and as you say the kind of lighthouses in the dark concepts mm-hmm. of you know pr- prime mm-hmm. contactees remote viewers and you know people meditating getting into certain mindsets to do CE5 when you when you think about the 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 difficulty in arranging something to do with nuclear you mm-hmm. can't think that I mean, I, I can't imagine that ATIP would have had the resources and the, the power and, and clout to be able to direct like nuclear weapons on a certain path so that they could observe any any UFOs mm-hmm. appearing. So do you think that perhaps the baiting experiments that they did in ATIP involved your prime contactees, remote viewers? I think that was yeah, the bait. Yeah, I mean, I, I would, and again, I'm just firing from the hip here. I don't know any of this, um, but I would say that it wouldn't surprise me if it was, if it weren't both. Um, I, I will say that it does seem, um, based on statements we've been able to, to locate that, um, they don't have to fire missiles, um, that it's literally just moving them. That if you can move, you know, these things around now that does get OST involved, right? So there's some money involved and some, you know, uh, logistics difficulties. Um, but if you can move these things around that, that yes, you can bait. So I do, I think it's, I think we can probably safely leave that on the table. But I also think that, yeah, I mean, you bring up a really great point. If all you need is an experiencer, you know, um, and, you, you know, the, the knowledge of how to do a particular protocol, and especially if you can combine that with a fairly reliable hotspot, which they seem to probably know um, based on, you know, different methods of knowing where these hotspots are. And that, yeah, that's probably a lot easier method to, to go out and, and um, start making these observations and measurements and maybe even attempts at contact. And, um, you know, that, that would seem to be a, a really good, at least economic way to do this, um, if economics is indeed uh, coming into play as they make those decisions. Yeah, and it's, it's a good point you were saying as well. You don't have to fire a nuclear missile or something like that to to mm-hmm. create the the environment to, to lay the bait, as, as it were. You can just move these things around. Um, mm-hmm. Also, it could potentially be that link to anti-neutrinos. You know, again, that's mm-hmm. something that, that I've heard you mention quite a bit. Um, mm-hmm. And it's an area that I've been really interested in ever since I saw Tim McMillan's, um, you know, uh, tweets about that quite some time ago probably about a year ago now isn't it but mm-hmm. there's there's also the possibility that if it's anti-neutrinos that are actually kind of also acting as as a as some kind of bait you know for, for ufos anti-neutrinos themselves could be sort of some kind of light lighthouse in the dark type of situation where you know and i know and anti-neutrinos have a connection to nuclear material so that could also mm-hmm. be from anything mm-hmm. to do with the, the actual nuclear fuel that's used in the missiles it could also be i know they're actually generated from nuclear power stations and things as well perhaps even Mm -hmm. the um i'm I'm pretty confident uh, that they're actually produced in the nuclear propulsion system for um, nuclear submarines there was Mm -hmm. actually i think one of the only detection um 
uh, like a, what's the word, like a, a device to detect anti-neutrinos is for the purpose of locating nuclear submarines because they're mm-hmm. impossible. They're very, very difficult to track nuclear submarines. So apparently there's mm-hmm. been experiments with, um, with actually, you know, using anti-neutrinos to detect, you know, do you think it's, um, it's a possibility that they could have combined these things. So perhaps if they knew of a, an already existing, like, um, uh, training exercise involving a nuclear powered submarine or a carrier or something mm-hmm. like that, a nuclear strike group that they wouldn't necessarily have to have the resources to direct an entire carrier group and all the various costs associated. Mm-hmm. They could just p- potentially take a remote viewer, a prime contactee onto that, mm-hmm. you know, onto the, the aircraft carrier or whatever it might be and sort of combine various baits. Yeah. I mean, I, I certainly would. I mean, if I, if I really wanted to with high confidence say, Hey, we, we, we're going to get all of our instrumentation out and we're going to make sure that we're ready. Um, then yeah, I want to go, I want to find my anti-neutrino honey hole, you know, <laughs> I want to go out there and make sure that we have, um, nuclear, uh, you know, uh, materials that are being moved around or, or present in the vicinity and maybe, maybe have an exercise, right. Some kind of exercise, but then also, yes, I, I, let's have an experiencer or two or five, right? And let's see if we can't um, vector some of these bad boys in, you know, <laughs> and, see, and just sort of see what happens, right? Vector them in, bring your lasers and, and, and let's just, let's figure this thing out. I mean, I think it would be um, brilliant to do all of that. And, and like you said, if you already know that an exercise is happening, you don't have to necessarily create all of that. It's already there. The only thing you have to add is the special human ingredient, right? Bring the right people. Um, make sure that you that that you're doing the right protocols. If if you know that those things, um, when done with fidelity, lead to good results, and just be ready. You know, be ready to um, to do what you're going to do. Um, I think that that all of that stuff is probably operative. Plus, you also have you know something we haven't talked about is you know the it's something that you mentioned earlier is um, they probably are able to track these things pretty well. You know, also and and so. Um, I wonder if you see a craft and you know, like, hey, there's probably going to be a craft that's that's headed your way or something like that. If you're able to stop it, you know, or if you're able to, you know, I, I don't know. I'm getting real speculative here, but it, it, all of those things, I'd say, throw the kitchen sink at it, right? Um, and uh, you know, it, it just because likely the instrumentation that you use to study these is probably specialized, right? They probably have some specialized. Um, you know, uh, measurement tools and things that they're using to gather data that they wouldn't otherwise have. Um, you know, and so if you've got it out, you probably want to make sure that you're not, um, you know, setting this all up and not getting any results. So, yeah, I th- that's a really fascinating. And, and, you know, I hadn't thought of thought about antineutrinos as themselves being a bait. I think my interpretation has been that um, possibly those are created um, maybe as a result of the propulsion systems and the craft themselves. And so if you have, a, a, and they, they hang around, right, an antineutrino signature hangs around. So if you see this and it's in a place where you know it's not supposed to be, um, then you know that there's some activity that's, that's here, some frequent activity, and that's where your honey hole is. But it could be like you're saying that maybe this is a place where you do have some submarines or some other, um, you know, nuclear powered um, you know, um, uh, you know, technology operating and because they are attracted to these nuclear materials, maybe that's, maybe that's why they are, it's kind of like chum in the water, if you will, um, sticking (laughs) with the fishing concepts here. Um, but yeah, that, that's interesting. 
Yeah, I mean that that's kind of just her, you know, how I I mean I'm not a physicist or I'm not like an anti neutrino specialist. Yeah, me neither. Yeah. <laughs> I think very few just, people are. Exactly. But I mean, yeah, it's when I've when I've sort of um briefly done a bit of research on it in, in the past. I mean the properties of those things are absolutely amazing, man. It's like mm-hmm. they can an anti neutrino can travel through the earth. Um, in in something ridiculous like a thousandth of a, th- a second, and wow. um, you know they're, they're actually they're created by I think nuclear material, and as I say, nuclear submarines give them off. And that would certainly, you know, if anti neutrinos are like um, you know, like a, a catnip for UFOs, you know, as, as mm-hmm. it, I don't know if you have cats, but you know, cats love catnip, yeah. and you know, maybe maybe that's what it is. Maybe you know they're they're actually picking up on the anti neutrinos, and perhaps you know that that could be you know some kind of bait for UFOs, and then there's a, a mm-hmm. separate way of actually detecting them. But these are all the the brilliant you know loose threads that 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 come up in the things you're talking about and then it's everybody else's job to pick up on those and you know follow them and and try and find out more about them isn't it so that's why we love this stuff it's a a never-ending mystery trying to get to the bottom of it all yeah and one of one of the great side effects of studying ufos um you know at any level is you inevitably end up um, learning about so much more, you know, and, and you find yourself consistently punching up and, and looking at things that you probably have no business looking at and trying to understand. Um, and it's great. It's a learning experience. And I think that people who aren't engaging at that level at trying to, to actually fall down some rabbit holes themselves, um, you know, I think they're missing out. Even if they're interested in the UFO subject, like I encourage people to get out and make some mistakes, right? Like I, I have no doubt that there are things that we have talked about today and things that are in loose threads that we're wrong about completely. Um, and so, but you know, if we don't go down that path and we don't look ourselves, um, to try and, 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 and get at the, the truth, then those questions are never asked in the first place. And so I think, you know, um, you know, hopefully I, I look forward to some of the people that we've written about correcting us and saying, yeah, you're wrong about this and you're wrong about that. You were right about that part, but this you're completely off. I would love to, to hear some of those statements. I haven't, I haven't really, um, we had a statement from Hal Putoff that said that he thought it was thorough and accurate, but, um, you know, nothing specific, but, uh, so, uh, I'm, I'm looking forward to, I hope that there's, if there's, those guys are out there and, uh, you know, they want to, want to talk and c- put, correct us or, or correct me, or, uh, I would love to see some of those statements, um, you know, just to, at least so that we just have them, even if it's complete denial, this is all terrible. We hate it. You know, these guys should quit their, quit everything they're doing and, and, uh, quit talking about UFOs. That's, I'd love to hear from those, from those guys, if, if that's the case. Um, so anyway, we welcome that criticism and, and, and we love it. Uh, we love seeing people, um, like, we, like I said, at the outset, pulling on loose threads themselves and, and, um, pulling, you know, asking new questions and, and uh, coming up with novel possibilities. Um, uh, and it's just been really amazing to see. Yeah, great stuff, man. So <clears throat> again, once more, just like to encourage everybody to go and check it out. Um, obviously, it's a, it's a lengthy read, uh, but it'll keep you going for quite some time, perhaps over the, the Christmas holidays. If, if you're anybody out there is struggling for reading material, definitely get on the case. Completely free, and the link is in the description. Hats off to you and uh, Hermes for, for doing that. So um, just like to say thank you very much for joining me. It's been an absolute pleasure. Do you want to just um, shout out your username on Twitter in case anybody wants to go and find you? I'm sure they will. Yeah, so you can find me at Omega Point and um, 
yeah. So come and come and see come and see us. And also, uh, my co-author is the Hermetic Penetrator, and you can find him. His uh, tag is thp twenty two. So if you search us up, you'll find us pretty easily. Um, and I hope that you do. If you like what we did with Loose Threads, I'm sure you will like um, my writing and and uh, some of the other things I've done and some of the other things that Hermes has done as well. Yeah, and I, I think it's. Um, I just checked it. I don't have this good of a memory in case anybody was wondering. Um, the Hermetic Penetrator is at thp underscore twenty two underscore twenty two. There so, you go. Um, yeah, it's a bit of a complicated one, but um, I'm sure if you search the Hermetic Penetrator, um, there's not many other people going to be called that on Twitter. So. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> so yeah, thanks very much. Really appreciate you coming on the show, man. Thanks so much. I appreciate it. Anytime. You have a favorite podcast.